0: We are, guys. We had had, as we said, we'd had this thing with the children's choir all planned, and and we decided because of this, we're going to go a different route. So we're going to actually, because of the snowpocalypse that was last week, we're going to go what I was going to do last week, today. So it's going to work out all right. Now, I I got into this a little bit. If you watch the Facebook Live, for the 10 of you that braved the elements last Sunday, I appreciate that. Y'all are idiots. because I was telling them, in 15 years of ministry, I've never canceled a service because of snow. This was the first time I regretted that decision. So uh, maybe I learned my lesson. We'll find out the next time, won't we? So anyway... But we've been in this series called God Anonymous, and we're talking about what God has to say about finances. And the reality is, is when we look at this, we want to know what God has to say on any subject. That's where we start. God, what do you have to say about anything that goes on in my life? The things that I do, the places I work, maybe even where I live. God, what do you say in these matters? And we began to look into the idea of giving. We've talked about tithing, and we talked about the difference between tithes and offerings. The one thing that we have to understand is that there is no commandment that we have to do either one. It is a free will choice that we do. But we do see a principle all throughout Scripture about the principle of tithing, of bringing the first fruits to God. Bringing that 10%, tithe means 10. We see in Scripture that a tenth is always a test. Every time there's a tenth, it's involving some sort of a test by God. And so by bringing that first fruit offering, that tenth, then God blesses the rest. And what happens is that we can do more more with that than we could with 100% without the hand of God upon it. Now, some people will walk away from something like this and be like, man, it's just another preacher trying to get money out of me. That's not what I'm trying to do, because what we see is that God is not interested in your money. What he's interested is your heart. That's where it always goes back to. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The question is, is our treasure involving the things of God, that we seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to us, or do we seek after the things and we hope for the best? The choice is ours. But what we see is a pattern of predictability, because God works in patterns, is that the tithe that we bring is a picture of God giving Jesus into the earth as a first fruit offering. You guys remember we looked at that, that he was that first fruit offering. Remember what first fruit is. It's his first and his best. That's what first fruits were. We bring the first fruits. When they did that in the Old Testament, they were bringing the first of the harvest, the first of that newborn uh, animal, whatever it was. And you did that in faith because you did not know how the rest of the harvest was going to go. You did not know if that animal would ever have another baby. You had no idea. So we brought it in faith, and we're bringing the first and the best. We don't bring an offering; we bring the first and the best. Jesus was the first fruit offering on our behalf. So we see that in the tithe, but we also see it in the offering. Because as we went through, that, there were five different types of offerings that were given in the Old Testament. The burnt offering, sin offering, all of that. Three of which were volitional, you did it as you want. Two were required, the sin offering and the trespass offering. One atoned for sin, that was on purpose. One atoned for sin, that was uh, an accident. I didn't mean to do it, I did it, it happened. And we watched that Jesus was again the fulfillment of that. That he was the perfect offerer and the perfect offering to fulfill that premise. So you could say, well, see, Jesus fulfilled all of that, then I don't need to do it. Again, it's coming back to, where is my heart? Does my heart belong to God? Because many of us would say, yes, I would do anything for God. And that is true until it's time to do something for God. Until it's time to get uncomfortable. And I'll give you an example of this, all right? This is a really easy test. Jesus said that he to the disciples, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. How many of us are doing that? Not a lot. Some of us do it passively. Did he tell the disciples, listen, I just want you to roam around, and if you get the opportunity to talk to somebody, go ahead and do that. Would you? would you mind doing that? That's not what he said. So where is our heart at? Is it after the things of the Lord? If we can't do that, why would we be doing anything else that God tells us to do? We should be actively pursuing the lost and preaching the gospel at all times and making disciples. Disciples are never born. They are always made. Somebody doesn't stumble into discipleship. It takes somebody preaching the gospel for that to happen. So, again, following the commandments of God. Where is our treasure at? That's what we have to ask. And that is what finances has to do with this here. Because when we look at where we spend all of our attention, it will tell us exactly where our heart is. We're taught as young people that we need to get a good education so that we can get a good job, so we can live the American dream of a house and two cars, 3.4 kids, and then we need to go out there and just save and store up as much as we can so we can live the good life. And what we see is that the things of God are always antithesis to the things of the world. We can have the good life. There's nothing wrong with having a house and multiple cars and, 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 and maybe even a boat and maybe having a, a vacation home. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. It's that what does that stuff mean to you on a scale to the things of God? If it means so much to you that you wouldn't be able to be willing to give it away tomorrow if God told you to, then it means too much to you. You put it in front of God. Your treasure is in the things. And so we see this all the time. We watch Christ as a picture of these things given to us that we can exemplify that and replicate that idea. Did Jesus give His life for us? Yes, He did. Should we be willing to give our lives for Him? Yeah, in two ways. In the way that we die, we should be willing to be martyred, if you will. But we should also be willing to live our lives for Him. You see, all of these things were pictures in the Old Testament, fulfilled by Christ, but as an example to us and how we should live. So let's start today in Hebrews chapter 10. Here after the first of the year, I'll be teaching through the book of Hebrews. It's an amazing book. It's a great study. I would definitely encourage you to come out when we get there. It'll be on Wednesday nights. But in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1, for the law, so what are we talking about? The Mosaic law, the covenant that God made with Moses. Having a shadow... Of the good things to come. And not the very image of the things can never with the same sacrifice which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. Now let's stop for a second. What sacrifice is he talking about? The burnt offering, the trespass offering, the day of atonement offering, when they brought that lamb, and that the high priest would sacrifice a lamb for himself and cleanse himself, and then he would also do one for the nation of Israel. So with those same sacrifices, they couldn't do it. But the shadow of good things to come is not the image. You cannot have a shadow if there is not something to create it. Does that make sense? It does, the shadow is not the substance of anything. But what it does is it tells us that there is something more to be seen. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? If those were all that you needed, would that not have stopped it? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, okay, so because of this... When he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me and burnt offers, offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. And the volume of the book, is it is, it, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Who's talking here? This is Jesus. Verse 8, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. We're talking about covenants. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So again, thinking of offerings. That the body of Christ was given one time because it was only needed one time. Where they had to, every single year, they were bringing offerings. But Jesus, the perfect offerer and the perfect offering, came and gave his life for us. Establishing this new covenant. Okay, Now a covenant is just a, it's an agreement, like a contract, is what we would call it today. The Jews had a covenant with God under Moses. Where God said, listen, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. If you'll keep my commandments, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. What do you want to do? And they said, hey, we want to do that. That sounds pretty great. He said, okay, then, we'll be in covenant. And what did they do? They broke it. All they had to do was keep his commandments. You see it time and time again. And you see judgments come as a result of that. And so Jesus comes in. He's taking care of all of this as this perfect offering. Every priest, verse 11, stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now think about this. He is the high priest. We see that later. We see another place in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest and he is ministering in this covenant. The One thing about the temple is there were no chairs in the temple. When the high priest went in there making the sacrifice... There was not a place to sit down and chill out for a while. They were in there. They had work to do. They would go and sprinkle blood on the different things. And and I don't want to get in all of that. we will get in the weeds. But the bottom line is, is that when he went in there, there was work. But when Jesus did it, he came in and he sat down. What does that tell us? The work's been complete. It's over. I don't have to do this anymore. It was through the offering of his body. So by offering Himself, He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. What does that mean? Well, that means those who are born again that are being sanctified are now perfected forever. Not for a period of time. Not for like, oh good, He perfected me, but I can go unperfect me. That doesn't work. It is now by Him, through Him alone, those of us being sanctified are the ones that are perfected by His work. So what did you do to get that? Nothing. You believe in Him. That's it. Put our faith in Him, our trust in Him. Verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after that, He said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds. I will write them. And He has their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Why? There is no longer a need. The sin offering has been given. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, remember the veil in the uh, the temple, that separated the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. Only the high priest could go in there one day a year. If he didn't follow the procedure to a T, he would die in the presence of God. So that veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, Jesus came down as that first fruit offering on our behalf, fully fulfilling the feasts that were going on and the day of atonement by being the sacrificial lamb given on our behalf. So, if where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, where was God's treasure? Look around the room. It was us the entire time. The apple of His eye. Willing to give whatever is necessary to make a way. That was Him. So, is God after our money? No. Was He after their... Did He need their animals? Did He need them to go harvest and bring us some crops? No. No. He can do what he wants but look at this Romans 2 verse 28 for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God how are you underneath that old covenant it was through circumcision and Moses told them time and time again yeah you're doing the law you're doing but your heart is far from God you need to circumcise your heart. God is after our heart. Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We see where the heart of God was. It was in mankind. He gave all for us. But we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, about this idea of mammon. Because when we look at finances, for whatever reason, we are drawn in this direction. Why do you think there are all these get-rich-quick schemes? And, and why do they keep coming up? And why do they keep selling? You ever have a friend get into one of those pyramid schemes? They become the most annoying person on the planet. Let me tell you about this great new product I just tried. And I lost 37 pounds in 14 hours. It was amazing. You've got to try it. If you act now, I'll even throw in some steak knives. These are people you haven't heard from in 10 years. But suddenly, you're their new best friend. Right. It's, it's irritating. Why? Because there makes a promise. Hey, you can make so much money doing this thing. You see these real estate uh, things that go on. Hey, if you pay me ten thousand dollars, I'll teach you how you can go and flip real estate. And you'll make so much money. You can't do make money doing this kind of stuff. But but again, we're so drawn to it to the next thing that it's like, OK, let's use our head a little bit. You see, what needs to happen is we need to break the spirit of mammon over our lives. Because the spirit of mammon, and I'll say this and I'll explain it later, is the spirit of the Antichrist. It's the same thing. We see it in the very beginning. We see it in, in the life of Christ. We see it in the life of the disciples. We see mammon. We see it on this earth today, making promises and convincing people to follow him. So what is mammon? Well, let's get into this. Let's jump into Luke chapter 16, verse 1. This is a parable that Jesus is telling. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. Now what is a steward? Steward is the one who is keeping and managing the goods of another person. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward.'" So word gets back to him that he is squandering his resource. It doesn't tell us what he's doing exactly, just that is happening. And the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So what's he doing? He's going to create a little plot. He said, listen, I can't dig. I can't work with my hands. I've been taking care of this guy's money. He's pulling some off the top. That's what's happening. He's like, and I, my pride is like, I'm, I'm too good to go and beg for money. So I'm going to go take care of these people. And when he throws me out, they'll take care of me. Verse 5, so he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Now don't think of that shrewdly wrong. It means you dealt quickly. He went and did this fast. And I say to you, make friends before yourselves by unrighteous Mammon, and when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you the trust, your trust, the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another's, man, who will give you what is in your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, there's a lot that's going on here, but what did he call the mammon? He called it unrighteous. He says, stir up or store up for yourself an unrighteous mammon. What he's getting at here, he's like, yeah, you go and make these friends and they'll be there for you in your destruction. But there's a picture that's going on here, because who is a steward? It is one who is taking care of the resources of another acting on his behalf. That's the only reason that he could call and say, listen, change your bill to half. Cut it down by this. Because he had the authority to do so. What are we? We're stewards on the earth. When you look at finances in the New Testament, it's always about stewardship. Taking care of what does not belong to us. When you're a parent, you are stewarding them children. Hopefully you're doing a good job. But it goes into this thing. You can't serve two masters. You'll be loyal to one and despise the other, or you will love the one and hate the other. The point here is, is that we cannot love mammon and love Jesus in equal terms. We can't. It's not possible. So who is mammon, and what is it? Remember, we talked about this. It comes from this Aramaic word it means riches. It comes from this Assyrian god of riches. I've got a picture of it. We've looked at this before. You can see here by these two different, these two different images here. That we don't have carvings or drawings of this. These have been put on these stuff that we find later on. Um, this one looks a little bit like "Job of the HUD. But what do you have here? You've got these people underneath of him, and in this one, he is chained around his forehead, bowing down, and he is dangling this money in front of him. Mammon is not money. Mammon is the spirit that is behind money. Do you know where this originated? I bet if you thought about it for a second you would. Because this originated from Babylon. Now the word Babylon was Babylon. It started in Genesis chapter 10 with the tower of Babel and the table of nations when they come together and they were going to build this tower and, and God goes down and confuses their language so I call Babel, right? They confuse their language. Suddenly, they can't complete the task because they they cannot communicate to each other anymore. And so, when they do this, they have to spread out. Babylon means sown in confusion. The Tower of Babel was a system to avoid God. They're saying, we don't need God anymore. And they're building this tower. It was a tower of worship. It was also a tower to rise up. That way, if God decided to flood the earth again, this tower would be so high that He couldn't reach us. So we don't have to answer to God. Go ahead and send your judgment, God. You can't reach us where we are. Pretty brave. We don't need God if we have money. See, mammon is this arrogant, prideful spirit that tries to replace God. And he is looking for servants. He's looking for people to serve him. Many of us grew up looking to mammon as the answer. How do we, most of us, decide what we wanted to do with the rest of our life? A lot of times, it's all based off of, well, if you go into this field, you could make X amount of dollars, and that is typically how we make our decisions. You realize that we we often vote based off of that. Who's going to be best for the economy? Again, we need to be good stewards. We need a good economy. Don't get me wrong. But that is the sole purpose. Yeah, the character of that individual I don't really like so much and they stand for some other things that maybe that I don't feel are godly, but man, the economy's good. So we must be all right. We do this all the time. See, we can't serve both. We are the loyal to one and despise the other or we love one and we hate the other. Look at this, verse 14 again. Now the Pharisees, now this is going on, just past this. The Pharisees Who were lovers of money also heard all of these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the Spirit of God. Now let's let's break this down. Who were the Pharisees? They were the religious and political leaders of the time of Jesus. In the time of the apostles, when, in the book of Acts, the Sadducees take over. Now, the Pharisees were what we would call the legalists. They were teachers of the law, and they were so strict. This is where they were the ones that were giving Jesus a hard time. You know, when they're sitting there picking weed on the Sabbath, and he's like, oh, you're working on the Sabbath. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, and, and Janet and some of these other guys can tell you, they have uh, Sabbath elevators that stop on every floor because pushing the button is work. So a lot of the Jews will wait until one of us Gentiles jump on there and they're like, could you push floor 7 for me? How stupid is that? (coughs) It's pretty dumb. But this is what goes on. So look at this. The Pharisees were lovers of money. This is right after this story. So who's he talking to? The Pharisees, they were lovers of money. Uh, and, and so he, they had heard all of these things, and they hated him for it. And he said, you are those who justify yourselves before men. When we think about justification, you justify yourself. You justify your behavior. Oh, I do this because I need to, or because of this, or because of that. I justify myself before men. They were acting on the outside. They were doing all the right things, but God knows their hearts. He says, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, think about that. When somebody is well off financially, do we esteem them higher? Do we think, boy, they must be smart. They must do something. Well, they, we move them up in this upper echelon of humanity, think, well, they must be better, or whatever. And all of us are like, oh, no, I don't do that. We all do in some capacity. It just happens. If you've got somebody who is very wealthy that comes and hangs out at your house, and you've got somebody who's very poor, and they got mud on their shoes, and they walk into your house, you're going to think of them differently. Now, you might because they track mud in. You see, we have this mentality here of we become Pharisees because our hearts aren't with God. Our hearts are with this unrighteous mammon. This is why the prosperity gospel that is out there, that we give, we sow a seed, we do, and we'll talk about this stuff later on, but while we sow this seed in hopes that God will give us some certain item, what happens when we do that is now we are not giving to give, we are giving to get. We are looking for some compensation in return for our faithfulness to God. It works selfishness and greed into our lives instead of out of our lives. And when something breaks or goes wrong in their lives financially, what do they do? They get mad at God. God, I gave, I did, whatever. See, Mammon is making all of this promise. If you will follow me, if you'll do what I say, then I'll make you wealthy and I'll give you respect. And I'll make sure that people know your name. Only God can bring peace and love and joy. Mammon promises all of these things, but he can't do it. Only God can give this. Mammon cannot deliver on any promise that is made. You see this all the time. I have talked to people who are extremely wealthy. There was this one lady that I knew. She was extremely wealthy. And her biggest fear in life was that it was all going to go away. She had security cameras everywhere because she was just convinced somebody was going to steal it from her. Everywhere. I met a gentleman in Omaha one time, very wealthy man again. Met at his house one time. Security ca- again, security cameras are not a problem. Everywhere, he told me, he's like, nobody's going to come in and take my stuff. And he was his biggest fear. His whole life, he said he goes on vacation, he's watching the cameras on his phone. Mammon cannot deliver on the promises that it makes It is the spirit of Antichrist. Janet was talking about this this morning. She seems to do this a lot. Let's look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. This is the end of time. The Antichrist is going to rise. This is John writing this, what he sees here. And and we see this, um, this whole thing take place. Luckily, we believe the church is going to be out of here by then. It says, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast and who was wounded by the sword and live. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now watch. He causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads that, they know, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the na- or the name of the beast or the number of his name. He is controlling people through one avenue. It's through money. This is how he's going to operate. Now think about this. Why does he go this route? Why doesn't he just do something? He's doing great signs and wonders. I mean, we're talking about like crazy stuff going on here. And the Antichrist is going to bring peace to the Middle East. And and there's going to be all of these great things that are going to start out this way. Then it's going to get a little hectic. And then people are going to be willingly taking his money. Now, why would they do that? Because you cannot buy or you cannot sell. It all has to do with finances. Finances. The spirit of Antichrist rules over the threat of not being able to buy or sell. That's it. It's economical. That's the only thing that he does. You see, so because of that, people are willingly going to side with this. Now, you think about this. This part of the Bible has been around for closely 2,000 years. There have been countless movies made about it. I would find it hard to believe that there is a, uh, maybe more than 10 to 15% of the population that has no idea about 666 and the Antichrist and all of that. So you would maybe think that if this is going to happen, it might throw up a red flag in someone's mind and say, Huh, I think I heard something about that and it doesn't end well for those people. Maybe I shouldn't do this. But because of this, he's going to make promises and he is going to threaten them that they can't buy or sell. And so they are willingly participating here. You see, the spirit of mammon, the spirit of Antichrist are one and the same. And they are going to promise identity, promise security, promise peace, promise love. That's how the Antichrist rises to power. is because he's going to promise all these things to these people and they are going to buy into it. But who can truly provide that? Only God. Only God. If I had more money, people would listen to me. If I had the right house, then I'd be happy. If I had the right car, then I would find satisfaction. If I was able to get the, uh, the American Express black card or whatever it is, there's some big fancy credit card out there, I don't know why that's a thing. Then I would be respected. We convince ourselves, if I had more money, then I could give more and help more people. That's the spirit of Mammon. That very statement, that may sound crazy and I'll explain it more later, but that very statement is not a godly statement. Because it's not how much you have, it's where is your heart? Does it belong to God? Because God doesn't need your finances. There is not a limited amount of funds that God can work with. God created all things. Does He own the cattle on a thousand hills? Yeah, I think so. I think He's got plenty. But He wants our heart. Jesus never told anyone that he needed more money. He never went around and was like, listen, we need to collect an offering. We need more money if we're going to go to the next place and do the next thing. I mean, the dude made like bread multiply and fish multiply. When we get into a financial hardship, we'll make statements like, man, I either need God to come through or I need someone to give me some money. I need something to happen. I mean, and again, if money can fix it, it's not a problem. If money can solve that problem, it's not a problem to begin with. You see, because we trust God. We have to trust God. So money isn't the problem. Money's not evil. It's the spirit of Antichrist. It's the spirit of Mammon. And he can talk. Because when you give it an offering, you'll hear voices. Oh, maybe you shouldn't do that. When you help somebody else, like, yeah, maybe you should keep some of that back for yourself. Maybe you should do this or do that. Mammon is a spirit that rests upon our money. It's upon economies. All the money in your account right now either has God's spirit upon it or the mammon's spirit upon it. And we know that based on of are we bring in the first fruits? Are we bringing the highest and the best? Are we willing to jump in when we have the ability to do so? Money is neutral. It's amoral. It is neither moral or immoral. It's what we do with it. And that's what matters. Luke 16, 9, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. It sounds like we make friends with money, that's not what it's talking about. You say, hey, yeah, you go ahead and do those things for them. This unrighteous mammon, make friends for yourself, and they'll receive you, they'll be there for you in an everlasting home. What do you think that everlasting home is? It's not a good place to be. Everlasting means forever. Nothing on this earth is forever. It is talking about damnation. Our heart should belong to God. Now, you may be sitting like, I have way too little of this unrighteous mammon to worry about giving it. Well, that's okay. We'll get there. But the bottom line is, is we start with what we have. This isn't, I'm not trying to like coax you guys into giving more. I'm trying to show you what the biblical principles are here. When we hear about Job, Job was a wealthy dude. He had it going on. And then you see that the accuser of the brethren comes in and and he begins to take things away from Job. And he kills his family and kills his animals. And he just brings the man to his knees. And everybody's like, well, why, why is that? Why does that happen to Job? How can that possibly happen? Could that happen to me? Well, here's the thing. If our heart is in God, belongs to God, then do we worry about what the economy is doing? No, we don't worry about it. Now again, we be wise with it. We make wise investments. Sometimes we've got to move something to someplace else. We do things. So I'm I'm not saying that, but we don't worry about it. But look what the statement that Job says in chapter 3. This is after all of this stuff happens. Verse 25. The thing I greatly feared has come upon me, for what I dreaded has happened to me. What was that thing? He lost everything. His fear dictated his behavior. It wasn't his faith in God. Who provided that for him? Who provided for Job? God did. His fear was that it would all go away. And we know the story. It all goes away. But God restores him to more than what he ever had. Now look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So there's that verse I keep reading, but now we're getting the context. So we have two types of treasures, right? We've got treasures on earth, and we know that is all going to go away, right? It's all going to go away. And we have treasures in heaven. Now what can we store up in heaven? People. That's it. Verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Here we go. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, so because of this, I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink. Don't worry about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So, why do you worry about clothing? Considering the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, this is the very thing that Job didn't do. He worried about all of that. We get caught in this trap all the time. We're so worried about what's going to happen. We're so worried about the economy, what's going to happen with our investment. We need to be good stewards with that. We need to be wise about it. We need to be putting away money for when we retire and putting away money for different things like that and making wise investments, but we don't need to be so worried about it that it consumes our life. Our life should be consumed with one thing and one thing only, and it is not Oklahoma football, all right? That is the spirit of Antichrist. I'm just pointing that out. We need to be so consumed with God that we begin to sound like Him and act like Him. We begin to look like Him. Because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. You see, if we treasure people, then we will be around people. If we treasure winning the lost, then we'll be around the lost and we'll be preaching the gospel all the time. But when we treasure all of this other stuff, we've got our reward. You see, God's heart was with the lost. Therefore, He gave His only Son. Our heart is not there. You see, there are two spirits at work in this earth. It's the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the Antichrist. You cannot ride the fence because you're going to love one and hate the other. You can't serve two masters. It's impossible. We watch Jesus actually do this very thing. Where Jesus has tempted by the spirit of antichrist and yet where we get it wrong he gets it right in matthew chapter 4 jesus has been fasting for forty days he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil start in verse one then jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and when he had fasted forty days and forty nights afterward he was hungry think you can understand that one right Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up in the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So where's he at? He's in Jerusalem on top of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands you shall bear up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, there is something greater going on here because if you go back into the book of Exodus when the Israelites are fleeing from Egypt, they're tempted with these same things except they get them wrong. Jesus is sort of spiritually undoing that. But there's another thing that's going on because we had to determine what is the spirit of Antichrist? The spirit of Antichrist is the pseudo-Christ taking the place of the actual Messiah. not against Christ, but he is taking the place. In other words, he's making promise that if you'll give your heart to me, then I will give you all of these things, and I will give you life, and I will give you breath. He can't do any of those things. So here Jesus is tempted. He's been fasting 40 days, 40 nights. I don't know about you, probably a little hungry. Okay? Some of you guys have a hard time making it through service just before lunch, thinking, is this guy ever going to end so we can go eat? So I get it. But he's tempted. And what does he come and bring him with? I will meet your needs right now. You worship me. Jesus is hungry. It's an immediate need he's looking for. And Jesus responded in a way, man should not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He brought him scriptures like, no, 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 you're not going to tempt me with this. Because why? Mammon cannot provide for your immediate need. And then he takes him up into Jerusalem, into the temple, and he throws a couple of Bible verses at him. He's like, listen, you know, if you just throw yourself off here and prove yourself Prove that you are this Messiah. Throw yourself off of it, Because this is what God said. He put His angels over you. And that He'll lift you up and you won't dash your foot against a stone. So He's using Scripture to justify His question. Now, what happens when we as people get called to the carpet on something? Yeah, if you were really that good, go ahead and prove it. What do we do? We attempt to prove it. Why? Because we're prideful. Jesus could not let pride well up. He's like, I'll show you I'm the Son of God. If he jumped off that temple, would angels have showed up and caught him? More than likely. But he doesn't have to prove himself to the mammon. And so he comes back and he's like, no, you will not tempt the Lord your God. That's what Scripture says. We're not twisting Scripture here. This is what it says. So he comes and says, like, listen, I'll take care of your needs. And then he comes in and gets his pride. He says, prove yourself to me. Jesus didn't fall for either one, but the last one. And this is the one where we get caught up in. He said, "Listen, if you will bow down and you worship me, all the kingdoms of the earth I will give to you." Power, recognition. He tempted him with that, and Jesus said, "No, you will worship the Lord your God. Where was Jesus' heart? The entire time belonged to God. Why? Because you can't serve two masters. Most of us would have failed. Most of us, if Mammon approached us today and said, "Listen, You'll worship me. I'll give you, I'll put you over all these things. I'll give you everything that your heart ever could desire. He can make a lot of promises, but he can never cash them. It's the same thing. Think about this. The enemy goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He cannot devour you unless you allow him. Mammon does not come in and take over your life unless we allow him to. The money in your wallet, the money in your checkbook, it should belong to God. And you be willing to do whatever He asks us to. The simple thing is, is bringing back, being a good steward, bringing back what belongs to Him. That first 10% belongs to Him. It's not ours, it's His. Okay, God, I know You put this into my, my, my possession, but I'm bringing it back to You because You told me to. And then He's going to say, I'll take care of everything else. So where's our heart? The spirit of mammon and the spirit of Antichrist are alive and well in the earth today. And we're going to serve one or the other. We cannot serve both. We have to check our hearts. All right, God. Where am I at? Am I where I need to be? Am I so caught up with getting to the next stage in life financially, with the next thing or, or whatever? Or does my heart belong to God that no matter what's going on in life, in the economy, doesn't matter, I'm going to trust God to meet my needs and I will continue to give to the work of the ministry and the things that God has called me to do? Only you can answer that question. But what I do know is you cannot serve mammon and, you, and God at the same time. We're going to love one and we're going to hate the other.